You're listening to Magribin Past and Present Podcasts. A space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This lecture is co-organized by the Centre d'études maghrébines en Algérie, CEMA, and the École Normale Supérieure d'Oran. This episode is part of Arts and Letters in the Maghreb Lecture Series and was recorded on 24th of April 2019 at the École Normale Supérieure d'Oran. In this podcast, Professor Munir Khalifa, Professor of English Literature at the University of Tunis, presents a lecture entitled William Wordsworth and the French Revolution. Professor Sidi Mohamed Lakhtar Parka, Professor of Comparative Literature from the Department of English at University of Oran, moderated the lecture. Well, first of all, I would like um, to tell you that uh, I'm pleased to come back on this spot, which I left, I think, about five or six years ago. I've never come back here. That was when I used to teach, to, uh, 2013, used to teach across the, uh, the campus. So um, um, there is a kind of nostalgic uh, atmosphere that um, uh, characterizes this meeting. On the other hand, I'm... Um, glad to see that uh, some of our former students are taking over and uh, they're doing it uh, nicely i think i'm proud of them i showed only two but there's another one over here <laughs> and um, um, i uh, was um, uh, uh, pleased and honored to uh, first of all um, told by uh, dr parks director of the cima and dr Wallace. Uh, deputy director of the CIMA, um, who have initiated, initiated this um, uh, meeting, uh, which I think is uh, or should be a kind of um, date in, I should say, your uh, scientific vacuum, allow me to use this, um, dates that you, you will uh, hopefully remember, uh, basically thanks to the uh, outstanding um, profile, professional profile of Professor Khalifa Munir, who is uh, sitting next uh, to me. Now, I wasn't expected um, to read his whole uh, CV, which I have um, uh, reduced in um, small cases. And in spite of that, I uh, went from eight pages to four pages. That would be too long. But I think Professor Khalifa uh, uh, um, uh, has um, got a PhD from Yale University, a Master of Arts from Yale University as well, 1991. A doctorate um, from the um, uh, University of Tunis, a maitrise of English at the Sorbonne, and a degree or license from the Sorbonne Nouvelle Paris 3. Um, he's got a kind of profile that looks slightly like mine because he's got uh, uh, American degrees, French degrees, Tunisian degrees. You know, this is the uh, 
usual itinerary of the people of our generation. So um, uh, I think uh, the idea would be that um, uh, I'll be as short as possible. I would like to do two things. Uh, he's going to inter uh, uh, introduce Woodsworth within a specific context, um, which is um, uh, known you know, as um, uh, romanticism. Um, I will not uh, expand on this. I'll leave it over to, to him. Um, just one thing, a kind of uh, warning, uh, warning between Buttercombe and Zermeis and uh, methodological warning to um, young students here, which is that uh, in literature um, there's this uh, peculiar tradition of um, uh, coining words, the one we're concerned with today is romanticism, but there are plenty of other words, uh, realism and um, interculturalism and uh, modernism and all these words um, they tend to be um, quite often to be at the origin of um, very interesting innovations but at the same time they are at the origin of um, quite a lot of troubles for the young students who want to start doing research and they are lost in between uh, um, different approaches. Um, um, uh, a critic uh, found, uh, listen, um, uh, uh, F. L. Lukas found uh, 11,369 um, uh, uh, definitions for romanticism. So it gives you an idea. You don't have to worry if ever one day you come across a definition of romanticism. I tell you it's the same for realism, the same for modernism. And I'm afraid for some more uh, fashionable words such as intercultural and maybe I think to a certain extent for gender studies as well. Now, the, um, there is another quotation that uh, underlines this kind of uh, complexity, which is that, you know, um, another critic said, romanticism uh, lies in between what is indispensable and useless. Some people may find it, uh, you know, useless and some other people uh, will certainly uh, find it uh, indis in indispensable. It's complex and um, it has a multiplicity of uh, meanings, specifically European in the European uh, uh, Romanticism. Um, it gave birth, basically, we remember, through the 18th century, it gave birth to one of the myths which you probably or will certainly have the opportunity to uh, come across, of the noble savage. And uh, just a few decades before Woodsworth, Robinson Crusoe produced, uh, uh, um, Daniel Defoe um, uh, published Robinson Crusoe, uh, Man Friday, who is probably one of the uh, most representative allegories of the noble savage. Romanticism um, for some, had a derogatory meaning, and for some others, uh, it had a kind of founding, um, uh, founding uh, uh, stimulation, a founding essence for what the individual uh, is or dreams of uh, uh, being. The, um, um, the 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 idea behind uh, all the, the complexity of this uh, word is that. Um, it um, came by the 17th century, roughly, as a 
linguistic variety or a kind of um, reaction against classical studies and Latin in particular, and it started to mean um, uh, a kind of popular languages or vernaculars, spoken Latin or vernaculars of Latin. This is why it has developed a branch of it which will later on give birth to romance and uh, courtesy romance, le roman courtois, which are considered as a uh, degraded uh, 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 prose form of uh, what used to be uh, the epic uh, uh, narrative. So this is as the background, and um, uh, within this uh, space, um, I think uh, Professor Khalifa Munir will give you an illustration of uh, how indispensable uh, such um, a conception of a period in the history of literature or in literary, uh, literary tradition uh, is important, and I leave the floor to Professor Cliff. Thank you so very much for this uh, very kind and some of it undeserved introduction. <laughs> uh, but let me begin by reassuring you of two things, and it's always good to begin a talk by giving the good news first. This is going to be a very brief presentation, merely half an hour. <laughs> That's the piece of good news. <laughs> the second one is that if you have not read a single line of verse of Wordsworth, don't worry. No one else has done so. <laughs> not in the past hundred years anyway, and no one reads poetry. Poetry is surviving now only in literary studies in universities. If you've seen anyone in a bookshop picking up a collection of poetry, you must examine their heads. They're very rare. They're very rare, and they must be very strange people. So, um, Wordsworth, as my colleague has pointed out, uh, is definitely a, uh, a major poet of not only English literary tradition, but also European tradition. Matthew Arnold, one of the best critics in the 19th century, was asked to name five poets that have marked or geniuses European uh, literature. He said Dante, obviously, Shakespeare, Milton, Wordsworth, and Moliere. And I think Matthew Arnold is not a critic to be uh, despised. Um, Wordsworth has written, he's lived a long time, by the way. Uh, he's, he's, he was born in 1770 and he died in 1850. That's a quite longevity for his period, where probably the uh, uh, age expectation was around 40, 45. So he lived about 80 years. And he was a very prolific uh, composer uh, and poet. And he left an enormous corpus. But again, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about the entire corpus of his. I will just talk about a very tiny, a very tiny portion, which is in one of his best known, better known poems, The Prelude. And I will eventually will tell you which passages, and I have brought you one passage to read. Um, and those passages that I have singled out from The Prelude I will talk more about the prelude in due time again, is the one that concerns the French Revolution. He was the only English poet 
who had actually been an eyewitness of not the revolution of the summer 1789, but in the aftermath, what happened afterwards. Uh, again, in my paper, I will talk about which period he was privy to in the uh, post-revolutionary events. And what is of interest to me and to you, I do hope, is how he viewed those events, how they concerned him, how he reflected upon them, what is it within him that moved him, and hopefully to find some kind of consonance or some kind of relevance to us today, who in the Arab world and in the Maghreb are going through also revolutionary phases. This is my very modest purpose of this paper. Let me first uh, say that one of the most tenacious commonplaces with regards to romanticism is, uh, here I will use the word romanticism not in the psychological sense, like you watch a romantic comedy, uh, a very popular genre by Hollywood, uh, uh, but I will use the word romanticism to the period, the uh, aesthetic in arts, in philosophy, in politics, which affected European countries at different periods. Uh, I will talk about the historical moment, if you like, in England. Uh, yes, indeed, Romanticism came as a reaction to the 18th century, which was the age of reason, sometimes called the neoclassical age, an age in which, in which uh, universal values uh, were deemed to be possible by the sheer endowment of all human beings with reason, hence the idea of cosmopolitanism, and it came in England with the publication of a collection of poetry by William Wordsworth and Coleridge in 1798 called Lyrical Ballads. And the collection of poetry was very strange because it did not talk about the usual themes that were popular in the, throughout the 18th century. It did not talk, for example, about a major genre called the pastoral. Also, in the lyrical poems that you would like to consult, they are available on, 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 on social media now, you will see that the poet will talk about his own personal feelings, something that was very strange for the readers. Uh, they will talk about what we will call now, today, ordinary themes, like meeting with a beggar, describing a beggar. Now, of course, it's a commonplace. My professor Harold Bloom used to say, all of our commonplaces today can be dated back to the romantics. Ideas we hold about nature, that we should respect nature, for example, is dated back to the romantics. Before the romantics, you could not care less about nature. If you talked about nature, you talked about it in general terms. It's probably Rousseau who began reflecting on nature, on mountains, on trees, on rivers, and endowing them with a moral entity a moral personality. Before that, the idea was itself extremely strange. Also, the idea that the genius, the creative genius, is personal. It's you, your own consciousness. No one is giving you your creative, imaginative powers. It comes within you. That idea also can be traced back to romanticism. And yet, another idea also very little reflected upon when we talk about the idea of the nation. 
Before the Romantics, the idea of the nation was very loose. There was, of course, France, French Kingdom, and uh, 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 England, Great Britain, and so on. But the idea that a nation within boundary itself that has its own cultural genius, its own language, wasn't around. And of course, that idea of the nation is linked to a past, to a literature. That was the time when people began saying, well, the great national poet of England is Shakespeare, and then Milton. Afterwards in France, they would say, yes, our national poet. The idea of a national poet before then did not exist is Dante or Victor Hugo, and so on and so forth. So I will use the word romanticism here, not in the psychological sense. Not when we say someone is romantic, being that he's dreamy, perhaps given to sentimentality, perhaps someone is oversensitive, who likes solitude. You all know have friends like this, and we call them romantics. So I will not use it in that sense. I will use it only to describe, again, that historical period in England, which, again, is encompassed between 1798, the publication of lyrical ballads by William Wordsworth and his friend Coleridge, and the coming of the Victorian period by 1835. It's probably lasted about 35 years, 40 years. That period itself is divided into two periods, the first major romantics, William Wordsworth, his friend Coleridge. Sometimes we include Blake, William Blake, although he's a kind of a genius yeah, of his own. It's very hard to categorize and classify. And the second generation of romantics, of course, you know, Shelley, John Keats, and Byron. I left out the minor ones, but there are innumerable other poets that were working in the same period. So, like all commonplaces about the Romantics, that they are uh, given to solitude and isolation and personification of their own creativity, um, yet, there's a massive yet, something that is not always very stated. The Romantics were deeply engaged in the issues of their time. They were not only engaged, some of them were even participant in the politics of their time. I will quote only three poets, French. Chateaubriand, he held innumerable embassies and he headed incredibly numerous diplomatic missions to Russia, to the Holy See, to England, to Constantinople. Lamartine, he ran for the presidential election of 1848, and I think he got 0.5%. Lamartine, the great orator and poet Lamartine, oversensitive if you like, but still, he was engaged in politics. He ran for the presidency and was defeated. Hugo, who does not remember his quarrel with Napoleon III, Le Petit? A quarrel, warfare, not only by pamphlets, but also in public speeches and appearances, which led Hugo to be exiled for about 20 years. From 1851 to 1879, Hugo lived in Jersey, in Belgium, and elsewhere. So they were engaged in They were not the isolated, solipsistic, egocentric geniuses creating alone in their ivory towers. 
Now, in England, perhaps the major romantics that I mentioned did not actively take part in politics, but certainly their poetry was replete with political themes. And I will talk again about William Blake, whom you know, and his series of poems on the chimney sweepers and the ravages of the early Industrial Revolution. I will not mention, in fact, I say, this figure of speech is called preteration. I don't mention, but I'm mentioning it. I won't mention either Shelley, and he wrote a beautiful poem on the massacres of Peterloo called The Mask of Anarchy. And Wordsworth himself, many of his poetry is suffused with political consideration. He said, for every hour I gave to poetry, I gave two to reflections on society. This is what he said himself in one of his letters. Now, William Wordsworth, as I mentioned, the founder of English Romanticism, is classically anthologized as nature poem. And he wrote, again, innumerable poems in which nature, as he said, is my priest, he, he, the worshiper of nature. But many of his poems, the better known lyrics, like The Ruined Cottage, or Michael, or Salisbury Plain, he even made a collection of poems called Poems on National Independence and Liberty, one of which is very well known on Toussaint Louverture. And he had also a series of sonnets, which he entitled Dedicated to Liberty and Order. And he wrote a tract on the mishandling of the British army and the British diplomacy of the Peninsula Wars with Napoleon called the Convention of Sintra. So today, again, I will restrict myself to examining the politics in his autobiographical poem, The Prelude. But let me first tell you the peculiar coming into being or genesis of The Prelude. It's a story that is worth telling you because it does put the frame of what I will talk about in, with regards to the, uh, French, his relationship with the French Revolution. Wordsworth and Coleridge met in the summer of 1795. They met in Bristol. Probably they met in August or September. We don't know yet exactly or when exactly. But they met at a friend's house in Bristol. Wordsworth was 25 and Coleridge was 23. And they were both aspiring poets. They have just completed Cambridge. Actually, Coleridge did not complete Cambridge. He, he dropped halfway through schooling. And uh, immediately, immediately they fell in love with one another in the intellectual sense. And that began probably the most fascinating literary companionship in literary history. It will last on for about 20 years. By 1815, 1870, there was a falling off and each went their own way. But for about 20 years, that was the most mutually productive relationship. Now, as most relationship, it was a little unequal. Or at least it was complementary. Wordsworth was grave. He hardly ever smiled. He was not given to mirth or to conversation. He was not a conversationalist. 
He wasn't brilliant, put it this way, but he was deep, was profound. He thought about things. Now, Coleridge is extremely well-learned, gorgeous knowledge. He spoke languages, he knew everything by heart, he could convince you he was a seducer in conversation. But, poor man, he had already beginning to suffer with some kind of pain, and he was already taking the liquid form of opium, which is known as laudanum. Now, this is to ease off pain. Many people think that he was taking drugs. There were no drugs in those days, at least to cure the pain. There were no painkillers. Laudanum was one. So that dogged his life. That made his life miserable. But also he saw somewhat that of this companionship, this friendship, Wordsworth is going to be the greater poet of the age. He was going to be the Milton. This is, in a friendship, usually it breaks the back of friendship. It could turn you into envy, into jealousy, into aggressiveness, but not him. No, the genuine friendship. So he kept dogging Wordsworth to write a long philosophical poet. That was the idea, believe, that in poetry, like in all other trades, you began with lyrics, and then you graduated to a longer form, and when you are a mature as a poet, then you compose an epic. An epic poem is not something to be despised. It's a long, drawn, protracted, sublime, high-level poetry for about 10,000 lines. This is not given to anyone. But Coleridge knew that only if there is someone who is going to write such a poem, it's going to be Wordsworth. So he kept dogging him about this, what he called the long philosophical poem. Wordsworth, you must write that long philosophical poem either in conversation or in their correspondence. Eventually, Wordsworth accepted the idea and began to entertain the thought that he must write that long philosophical poem and which he began calling the recluse. Now, the recluse is going to be about man, society, and the human condition. This is the actual quotation by Wordsworth. It is going to be a poem, not only one poem, but four long poems. Well, we are happy that he never composed four long poems. Because that's something that's beyond human power. He composed one. He composed one which he published in 1814 called The Excursion, being a portion of the recluse. This is the subtitle. In nine books, this poem is so bad, so awful, one of the uh, critics in the Edinburgh Review wrote, this will never do, Jeffrey. Jeffrey was the, if you like, the uh, great critic of the age who made and unmade uh, poets. My, my, my professor, Jeffrey Hartman, used to say, if one day you want to punish one of your students, give them the excursion as an assignment. So don't give them an excursion. <laughs> it's long and boring. It's an extremely boring poem. You have four characters. One, a narrator, a young poet, and then you have a priest and a wanderer and someone called the solitary. And these four characters walk about in the landscape, possibly north of England, in the Lake District, and they're talking. And they're talking about the meaning of life. What a boring subject. So the pastor will say something, and then the wanderer will say, no, 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 it's not like that. And it's very boring. So 
Wordsworth felt that he needed long before to introduce the narrator, the young poet, which is of course himself. Hence, an autobiographical poem, the one that is called The Prelude. He began working on it as early as 1799, which was completed that year, two little volumes, one together, two book prelude. He kept working on it, on and on, and then in 1805, it was completed. A complete, full-length, epic dimension poem. Again, he did not give it a title. It wasn't titled. He referred to that poem as not the long philosophical poem that his friend entreated him to write, but he called it the poem on the growth of my poetic mind. This is the full sentence. The poem on the growth of my poetic mind. And he kept, he never published that poem in 1805, that was completed in 12 books. But he kept working on it, reworking on it, explicating it, expanding it, expurging it, correcting it throughout his life. When he died in 1850, he was still working on it. But he left a copy of 14 books. I think book 13 was split into two. So his widow and his son-in-law published it. And because they know the story that this poem was going to be an introduction to that huge edifice I told you of, the recluse, they called it the prelude. I don't know, the prelude in English means introduction. Now, remember, Wordsworth called this poem the poem on the growth of my poetic mind. So it's a poem about himself. And in this poem, you will find nothing except how he was reared, said, taught by beauty and by fear, by nature, little uh, childhood memories, uh, his education in Cambridge, and the three central books on France and the French Revolution. This is how you can place the books in France. They were about his experience with the French Revolution. To be more precise, what is it that the French Revolution taught him the way, for example, nature taught him as a child? Or the way certain, some of his teachers taught him as their masters? In one point he said, I will only talk about these events. I'm not a historian, he said. I'm not a chronicler, I'm not a journalist. I will only talk about these events insofar as they are storm or sunshine to my individual mind. The events will only, he will narrate them only insofar as they have framed his thoughts, only insofar as they taught him something, only insofar as they were instructive. And it is the purpose of this talk to mention what is it that he found instructive in those events. I said those three books in the prelude, books 9, 10, and 11, are central because they constitute a crisis. Most autobiographies, by the way, and this is something that autobiographers have learned from your great and our great compatriot, Augustine, every biography includes a crisis. The usual structure of a poetic crisis or a critical poem is that the self 
is moving in a certain unreflective way, happy doing what they are meant to do. Think of Book 8 in the Confession of Augustine, for example. And suddenly there is a moral or spiritual crisis. Something happens in terms of loss of faith or huge self-questioning. The unexamined life is not worth living, if you like. And then there's a big dip, equivalent to a nervous breakdown, what we call it today, a depression. A depression. There's nothing, let's call a spade a spade. And then something comes either by one's own inward working or by some external agency that pulls out the narrator from that deep pit of darkness and despondency into a better life or a spiritual renovation. Again, think of Augustine. And this is what Wordsworth tells us in the prelude. He was traveling everything. I will read you the, the passage in which he felt this. And then big dip, because of the French Revolution, or what it did to him, or what some of the events that brought about this depression in his. And though he was lifted out of this depression, but he will tell us by nature and by his sister Dorothy, and when he was able to find, as he called them, those sweet counsels between head and heart, how he could reconcile feelings with thought. Because the, the, probably the most tragic thing for a poet is when feelings or sentiments or the capability of emotional response with nature or something, other external events, is no longer connected with reflection. Or when reflection or thoughtful ratiocinations is no longer connected with feelings. If that divorce happens, that is certainly always the imaginative death of poets. I will come back to that. And why is it, exa it is exactly that words were felt that rift or gap or rupture within himself between his own feelings and his own rational thinking. So he resided in France at least on three occasions, possibly four, but the fourth one we are not absolutely sure. First, part of the grand tour, Wordsworth went to England in 1790. He was 20. He had just completed third year in Cambridge, and you know that all students with the third year in Cambridge and Oxford, those were the only universities in England, by the way, then, the third public, called Red Brick University, will be Manchester in 1846, about 50, more than 50 years later. All students, once they completed their third year in Oxbridge, are required to do the grand tour. That is, go to the land, classical lands. Experiential learning, the word was not used then, but now it's a commonplace, commonplace was an adjunct something complementary to bookish learning. If you wanted to, if you like, expand your mind, then you must go the lands of the classics, which is, of course, the two classical lands for European culture are Latinity, Italy, and Greece. Well, they went only to Italy. Why not Greece? Can anyone guess very quickly? I always ask this question. 
It was under the Ottoman Empire. It will not become independent till 1832. So they couldn't go to Greece, but they went to Italy. And you have to go to Italy. Nowadays, there were no jet planes in those days, no fast trains. You walked. So in the summer of 1790, he landed in Calais and crossed France with a friend of his, Raisley Culvert, from Cambridge. Now, their crossing of France coincided with the first celebration of the fall of the Bastille. And the first commemoration of the fall of the Bastille in 1790 was called La Fête de la Fédération. And all the villages were bedecked with colors and lighters and singing and dancing and reveling. And he took part and he described the first Fête de la Fédération. That was the first voyage. He spent three months in France, going all the way to the Alps, across the Alps to Italy, and then went back. The second was much, much longer. He came back in probably early October 1791. He returned, presumably to improve his French. And then he crossed Paris, and then went down to settle in, uh, we don't know why, Orléans, and Boulois, near the Loire, and he resided there for about a year and two months. There he met a royalist army, which was barracked in Orléans, uh, waiting orders to go to fight somewhere. So these were barracks, and he got into friendship with one of the officers, General, uh, uh, Colonel Beaupuy, with whom he became friends. The only officer, he said, who was a Democrat. By the way, Wordsworth described himself in those years as, I am one of those odious class of people called Democrats. This is what he wrote in a letter to his teacher. I hope one day you write such beautifully crafted sentences to your teachers. Odious class of persons known as Democrats. Remember, Democrat in those days probably meant something larger than today. It meant you are against slavery, you are an abolitionist, and probably you would be militating with Wilberforce, Henry Wilberforce, the great uh, uh, champion of anti-slavery in England. Maybe you were also for more rights of women with the early Brooking stocks like, or suffragettes, were not called suffragettes yet, Mary Wollstonecraft. Probably you were for political reform also. Maybe you were for the extension or expansion of the excise. More and more, you wanted more people to vote. And also, of course, you were against tyranny, you were for liberty. You would be, you would certainly would be for the independence of the America. That would probably would brand you as a Democrat. And Wordsworth described himself as a Democrat. So he went to France in the end of summer, early fall, 1798, and he stayed till December 1792. Now, those of you may remember that something extremely awful happened in France in August and September, 1792, which known as the September Massacres, and the beginning of the reign of terrors inaugurated by Robespierre and the Jacobins. He was there in Paris and he was shaking with fear that he may be apprehended as a British spy. Because by then, Britain had joined the coalition with Austria and Prussia and, England, uh, and Spain and Portugal against, the, uh, against France. 
So he was in mortal fear of being uh, beheaded. And he managed to escape by December uh, 1792. The third time, oh, I forgot to mention, in Blois, he met a young lady called Annette Vallon, and they had an affair which brought into the world a beautiful baby called Caroline. So in 1802, in a the brief peace of Amiens between Napoleon and Britain, he took advantage of this and returned to, England, to Calais, where he met with his daughter, who would have been by then about 10 years old. And he met uh, with his former uh, mistress, Annette Vallon, and he made a settlement. We know that he spent four months in August 1802 in England. But that was under Napoleonic France. Uh, probably he went back in 1793, earlier on, but we have absolutely no proof. We can only guess. So he was, he was about the only English poet who was an eyewitness to the French Revolution or the aftermath or the events that were part of the French Revolution. Now, I said that the three books in the prelude, books nine, 10, and 11, uh, and each book in the prelude has a, a subtitle, so you have Childhood, Cambridge, Crossing of the Alps. These books are actually entitled Residence in France. These three books constitute, as I mentioned earlier, a fulcrum or a high point in the narrative about the growth of his poetic mind insofar as they threw him into depression. It's these events that threw him into depression from which the renovation of his spirit will only come about much later on, thanks to Dorothy, his sister, and to nature, and those return of sweet counsels between head and heart. Now, a key passage in Book 10 describes this commotion to the portal being of the poet, and this is the passage when he learned that Britain had joined the anti France coalition made of Prussia, Austria, and so on and so forth. No shock given to my moral nature had I known down to that very moment. Neither lapse nor turn of sentiment that might be named a revolution, save at this one time. All else was progress on the selfsame path on which, with a diversity of pace, I had been traveling. This, in this moment in which the Britain joined the country, this astride at once into another dark region. See, this is incredible shock that he felt. And why did he feel this shock? What is so shocking about Britain joining the anti-revolutionary coalition? He had assumed, like all radicals, all the youth of his day, that Britain, which is the land of liberty, would actually side with the revolutionaries. The shock is that he was taken by real politics. Now, the other region the shock has thrown him into is despair. Despair because he has naively assumed that England, the land of freedom, would not take up arms against the Nasset Republic. The despair is born of the conflict between two loyalties, 
The first loyalty is towards the revolutionary ideals of liberty and the rights of man. And he was an avid reader of the rights of man by Thomas Paine. The other loyalty was to his country, because Wordsworth knew that the native virtues he believed owed to his imaginative powers come from England and his childhood. He described, for example, how he rejoiced when Englishmen by thousands were overthrown in the field, left without glory. So when the English army was defeated in the field of Valmy, for example, he rejoiced, unlike anybody else. But grief, it was a grief. Grief means sorrow, sadness. Grief, call it not, it was anything but that. A conflict of sensations without name, of which he only, who may love the sight of a village steeple, as I do, can judge. But there is a deeper betrayal. I don't think that the betrayal of his country, or by his country, is the only cause that threw him into that unknown region, that dark spot in his mind. I think the betrayal is the one that he thinks was done to nature. Nature is one of those things, one of those words, one of those terms that are extremely hard to define. Like Romanticism, possibly there would be 10,000 definitions of nature. But I will use only two that are recurrent in, in, in Wordsworth, and whenever you read anyone of that period. There is, of course, nature of the trees and the clouds and the streams and the mountains of rocks and stones and trees the natural nature, the physical nature. And there is nature which may be described as the principle that makes things what they are and nothing else. Or a force within things that makes them exactly what they are. If I take this cup, this paper cup, and I squeeze it, comes back. I would say it is in the nature of the paper cup to spring back whenever you squeeze it. That is also a definition of nature. A force or a principle or an energy within things that makes them what they are. It's not to be confused with being or other concepts that are very close. That is understood, and usually with capital N. It is the second sense of nature, which, from which, for example, is derived the idea of human nature. And of course, you can construe human nature in the Rousseauist sense that we are essentially good. That it is in the nature of man to be good, to want good and to do good. Except for Rousseau, the perversion that we do evil comes from the fact that we live in a gregarious setting of society. But also, if you are pessimist, you say, it is in the nature of man to do evil. Whatever you think, it is a principle within us which makes us do what we do, and because we do them the way we do them, is because it's in our nature we do them, if you like. It's this autotelic, circular kind of lecture about nature. The only thing, this is not so simple. This is not so simple. I will give you an example that you will find very often in Shelley. Now, 
we may say that it is in the nature of water to come from top to down. Right? You cannot make water go up. Only man can force water by a system of vice or pump or whatever other means or device to make it go an upward course. It is in the nature of water to come down, right? Okay, now big question here upon which people diverge. Is the fact that water always comes down by nature, by its own impulse, is that a way for water to show that it is free or is that a compulsion? Or is that a form of servitude? In fact, most of the romantics would say the water is free to come down. We will do violence to nature if we make it go up by a vice again, or a pump, or pulley, or whatever. And that's why the Greeks called mechanics the art of rusing with nature, is contriving to make nature do things that it doesn't want to do, it doesn't like to do. And possibly the entire realm of technology and science is forcing nature to do things that nature normally doesn't do. Some romantics would be against technology insofar as it wreaks violence on nature, but they never ask questions like, am I for or am I against? For example, when Shelley talks about the West Wind in this famous poet, or wild west wind, and so on and so forth. He talks about nature as bringing freedom because nature is free. Why do poets, especially romantic poets, this is a little parenthesis, I'm sorry, I will come back, don't you worry. Why do romantic poets love singing birds, nightingales, shahroor, alesh, Romantic poets began this tradition of the singing birds. Why do they like? Do you think really that great poets care about the little birds singing in the darkness? What is it they like about singing birds? Very good. They're a natural voice. It's not contrived. No one is forcing the bird to sing. Why do they like Harir al-Mieh? Skif kif. It's because water loves to make its own music. No one is forcing. And the dream of the poet, poem after poem, lyric after lyric. I want my poetic voice to be as natural as the poet, uh, as the birds, or as the rustling leaves in the wind, or as, again, the uh, uh, murmuring of the brook, that kind of thing. These are metaphors. These are images, of course. I mean, no poet wants to be like a little thrush hidden or a nightingale in the foliage. But you will find this imagery that a poet like their poetry to be as spontaneous, as natural, as uncontrived, Milton says, unpremeditated verse. And Keats in Ode to a Nightingale, Qasidat al-Shahrur, he also said, I would like to sing with full-throated ease. I would like my voice, my poetic voice, to be like the birds, full-throated ease. Now, I think Wordsworth, to come back to nature again, he thought that the French Revolution was part of a natural process for mankind. He has not read a single line of Hegel, don't worry. He's not having this idea from Kant or Hegel. Maybe 
Coleridge. Coleridge has read Schelling and, and, and other earlier German idealists, but certainly not Kant, and certainly not Hegel, who would write a little bit later. For example, the phenomen phenomenology of mind will not appear till 1807. So it, 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 he, he could not have this idea. He's not beholden to it for, uh, uh, to, to, to Hegel anyway. But he, like, again, most of the radicals, and most of the 18, most of the 18th century thinkers, when they wanted to ground ideas like liberty, like equality, like justice, for example, where do they ground it in? What do they say? Le droit des gens. They say it's a birthright. It's something that comes to us simply because of our human condition. It's a natural right. C'est un droit naturel. What does droit naturel mean? Because it's given by our human nature. It's part of our nature. So he had assumed that what France, the French Revolution, is simply exemplifying is simply a manifestation of a natural process. That sooner or later, mankind will liberate itself. This is a commonplace. It was not invented by Wordsworth or the Romantic poets. Throughout the 18th century, and even the classics, if you looked uh, 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 hard enough, you will find text that all these rights are birthrights, are natural rights. And that revolution thereby is a natural phenomenon. Now, I have here singled out an example. Why, he tells us, when he first heard of the fall of the Bastille, he did not leap out for joy. This is a very interesting reason why he tells us why. If at the first great outbreak, I rejoiced less than might well befit my youth, he felt, did not feel a lot of joy. The cause in part lay here, that unto me, the event seemed nothing out of nature's certain course. A gift that was come rather late than soon. What is he saying here? He's saying that when he heard the news of the Bastille fall and that the French people are beginning to break the fetters of their own servitude, he said, I did not rejoice this. It looked blasé. Well, it, this is a gift of nature. It's come rather late than soon. I mean, it's a, nature's doing its own course. And he's also, I have singled out these brief lines in which he said why he did not take too much attention to the anti-slavery movement. He said, I brought with me the faith that if France prospered, good men would not long pay fruitless worship to humanity. And this most rotten branch of human shame, slavery, object so deemed its superfluous pain, would fall together with its parent tree. He believed, like all the 18th century philosophers and most of the romantics of his generation, that autonomy, liberty, human rights are something inscribed in history. That these are things that somewhat are fated to come. And this, he tells us how, when he first heard in those, again, France books, news of the uh, death of Robespierre, who was walking on the beach, and there's a ferryman who just crossed a little strait in Westmoreland. I said, Robespierre is dead, Robespierre is dead. He felt joy, he felt great joy. 
But at the same time, he felt that he shouldn't possibly feeling joy at the death of a man. But this is how he explained that joy. Great was my transport, deep my gratitude to everlasting justice. By this fiat made manifest, come now your golden time, said I, forth pouring on those open sands, a hymn to triumph. As the morning comes from out of the bosom of the night, come ye, thus for our trust is verified. And now, he continues, the glorious renovation would proceed. The key word here is renovation. Remember, after a crisis, after a moral crisis, there's always a renovation of the spirit. As though what Robespierre and the reign of terror done is to block the natural process of liberty, fraternity, uh, and equality. And now that this blockage has been removed, the renovation would proceed. Before I will ask, I'll ask one of you to read that little verse paragraph. I would have just a couple of pages to point to uh, another, to another cause of his depression uh, uh, inflicted on him by the French Revolution. Renovation in Wordsworth, and I think the poetry is replete with this word. Sometimes you find its synonym restoration, renewal, renovation. They all invariably signify that the mind has sustained some kind of aggression and yet it has been capable of healing itself. Again, the healing either comes from within, by inward exertion and work and meditation, or it can come from without. Often with Wordsworth, it's again a natural event or something he reads or a dream, a dream vision that will somewhat interpolate him and made his mind to recapture its initial state, a better state. Uh, the injury implied here is the one that has damaged the spirit of the revolution by the reign of terror. Wordsworth exaltation comes from his faith that this unnatural cause has been removed, now healing would begin. But the deepest injury to nature is the one inflicted by reason's naked self when it becomes the object of its fervor. Here I'm quoting Wordsworth. Reason's naked self when it becomes the object of its fervor. What does fervor mean? Passion, love. Wordsworth is saying the deepest hurt my spirit had sustained in when when I began thinking and divorcing my thought from other sources of what he calls primary affections. It's when reason falls in love with itself, when thinking becomes its own object. I have again singled out a passage in which because, if you are familiar with French Revolution, there was a group of thinkers called the ideologues. 
Uh, the ideologues described their beholden to Condillac, uh, another earlier thinker. Uh, he was a little bit contemporary with the revolution, but a little earlier on. It's called La Science des Idées. What does science of ideas mean? By Testu de Tracy, Cabanis, and so on. Is to think about thinking. A thinking that is divorced from nature, from social reality, for example, from historical culture, from natural processes in society. Professor Caro had talked, I think, on a couple of occasions on le travail du terrain that should not be divorced from theoretical speculations. Likewise, Wordsworth has sensed early on when reason falls in love with reason, the worst nightmare could happen. Now, this is roughly one of the themes expatiated on by two major thinkers of the Frankfurt School in their book, The Negative Dialectics in English, and I think the Dialectic uh, of the Enlightenment, La Dialectique des Lumières. This is just one theme. I mean, the book is uh, many, many, many themes. But one of the themes is that certain cultures, under the sway of certain ideologies, constitute reason and reasonable, uh, sorry, re reasoning as some kind of myth-making. As though anything that comes from rational thinking is itself becomes reason with capital R, is justified. Now, the ancients have already thought about this. And you all perhaps know that for the Greeks, it's better to have an arbiter than a judge. Because the arbiter considers equity, al-insaf, and the judge considered the law, justice. And you have, if you go one day to uh, uh, the capital of Mallorca, is uh, Las Palmas, Mallorca, de, uh, Palma de Mallorca. There's a huge statue in one of the main squares by the, one of the earliest humanists, called Raymond Lull, statue on a, uh, uh, a pedestal. And on the pedestal, there's an inscription in Arabic, in Latin, in Catalan, and I think in Spanish. It's a quotation from his Arabic because he was contemporary. The Arabs were ousted out of Palma de Mallorca in 1132 or 1135, and he was somewhat in that period in which he knew about Arabic thought, but at the same time also medieval Latin and so on. And the sentence reads like this, there is no virtue in justice that is not tempered by love. I mean, justice alone, the application alone of the rigor of law is not enough. It must be somewhat attenuated and softened up and tempered by love. And love, of course, is meant caritas, charity. Okay, so Wordsworth knew this. In the revolution, at one point, he became absolutely enamored with his own thinking. And he considered uh, 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 everything under the light simply of reason. That's what the time, I'm here quoting him in uh, uh, verbatim, this was the time when all things tend fast to deprivation. 
speculative schemes that promise to abstract the hopes of man out of his feelings, to be fixed thenceforth forever in a purer element found ready welcome. Look at the sentence. This was the time when speculative schemes promised to abstract the hopes of man out of his feelings. Again, disruptures divorce between thinking and feeling. Abstract, as you know, is a Latinate formation. Ab, from, and tractare, the word that gave tractor, to pull. To pull out. There is a violent in the movement here of those speculative schemes that rupture somewhat one's individual being, both thinking and, and feeling. To that urgent and essential question, what happens if reason is divorced from feelings and sentiments? What faculty of mind or external agency then will guide the baffled self to truth or virtue or justice or liberty? The dreadful answer that he found is this. It's already formulated in one of his earlier youthful books called The Borderers. There's only one guide, the light of circumstances flashed upon an independent intellect. This is the fear, the great fear that Wordsworth thought the French Revolution was capable of, that decisions, political decisions, and decisions of life and death will not be taken under the guidance of principles, moral principles, natural principles, but by, look at the sentence, the light of circumstances flashed upon an independent intellect. They're taken here and now for the sake of themselves. Dictated by the moment, by the here and now. The worst thing Wordsworth knew that would happen and did happen under the French Revolution, that decisions were taken, not guided by, again, those mutual or kindred mutations or the counsels of head and heart and all these natural principles, but dictated by the urgency of the moment. Now I come to the uh, passage that you have there before you. It is often said that Wordsworth, at the end of his life, relinquished his youthful ideals, that he turned into, in the words of Browning, a moral eunuch, that, again, in the words of Browning, he became a lost leader from a young radical uplifted with ideals of liberty, fraternity, justice, and so on. He became conservative, New England, Anglican Church, royalist, perhaps. But the passage that you have before you is far more complex and, I think, nuanced than this very simplistic idea. Who would like to read the passage? Yes, go ahead. Read it as though you read prose, very simply. Go ahead, yes. But as the ancient part was born aloft, and vision yet constrained by natural laws, we're there to take the trouble of the human heart. Once we found consolation nor a creed, of reconcilement then when they denounced. On towns and cities, one look in the abyss of their offenses punishment to come. Or so, like other men, with bugging the eyes, before them, not the place. 
the Thank you. That's very nice. You know how to read prose. Sentence by sentence, not line by line. That's all. This is a... Wordsworth is never obscure. He's profound. And this passage is, I think, one of the very few that I have difficulties with. It's, this is a long epic simile. It's a long drawn comparison. Why is he comparing himself in the midst of all the terrible events of the French Revolution to ancient prophets? What do they have in common? What does he say he thinks he has in common with ancient prophets? What they have in common is visionariness. But as the ancient prophets born aloft in vision, prophets and Wordsworth in the midst of revolution and prophets in the midst of divine chastisement, divine punishment of cities wallowing in sin. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example. Qomlut. Think of them. Me, in the middle of the terrible events of the French Revolution, the beheadings, the, the, the gorsas, the speeches, the synod, all the terrible events, the wars, the famine, and so on and so forth. Me, in those events, is just like ancient prophets in those divine destructions of cities wallowing in their own sin, have one thing in common, which is the capacity to see vision, visionaries. We have a vantage for, and we see and we take with us this beautiful sentence, a troubled human heart. Because even in those wallowing terrible times, there is still pity and sorrow. There's still a human heart, a troubled human heart about human condition. Yet, and here is the big yet, somewhat, these terrible events have a meaning. Someone, these terrible events are justified. He doesn't tell us why they are justified or by what. But from the earlier passages I read to you, I hope now it become clear what justifies them. Is that at the end, eventually, one day, and this is a theme recurrent in Wordsworth, hope will be restored. Liberty will be recaptured. Now we are going through terrible times, but that's the course of nature. Nature wants us. It's again, one would immediately think of the Hegelian theory of the ruse in history. La ruse de l'histoire. Sometimes history takes circuitous courses. It doesn't go straight ahead. Wars and famines and civil strife are maybe contorted ways, Hegel says, for the mind, Geschichte, but Wordsworth says, for nature, to, to fulfill itself. And this is why he said, it's this belief that at the very end of his life, and look what he says, 
that through the time's exceeding fierceness, saw glimpses of retribution terrible and in the order of sublime behest. Sublime here means lofty and divine. But even if that were not, because he does consider that this may not be the case. But then, what? Amid the awe of unintelligible chastisement, not only acquiescence of faith survived, but daring sympathies with power. He still loved those terrible events. He said, if only because they were sublime, there was something awesome about them. And remember, the definition of sublimity for the ancient theoreticians, from Longinus to Edmund Burke, is beauty with fear. The definition of the sublime is then when beauty and terror are combined. And this is what he felt during the French Revolution. Not only an aesthetic moment of exaltation, but something that someone gave him a little glimpse that human nature is in its right course despite all the tragedies. Thank you very much for your attention. Professor Khalifa uh, Mounir, we'd like to thank you for this um, uh, very um, introspective and extremely sensible and sensitive um, uh, introduction to Wordsworth and his time and period and his uh, literary uh, background, Romanticism. So on behalf of um, the CIMA, and on behalf of the ENS, I would like to thank all of you and thank specifically here uh, Professor Khalifa uh, Munir. And I hope you've um, enjoyed what you have been listening to. Thank you for listening to Maghribin Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghribin Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the SEMA newsletter at www.sema.com dash northafrica.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.